Hi, in the hills of Happy Valley, Oregon, welcome to Until We Meet Again, brought to you by the kind support of Cornerstone Funeral Services in Boring, Oregon, and friends like you. I'm Elizabeth Fournier. This radio broadcast is an expression of our common ground immortality, because after all, we are all in this together. Today's reading is edited and adapted from Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. When we speak in anger, we fail to show God's love. Whether speaking to a family member or a stranger, our communication should always come forth in a loving manner. My guest today is Jethro Heiko. He's one of the creators of the conversational game called Hello. It's an easy, non-threatening way to start a conversation with your family and friends about what matters most. Jethro grew up in Boston, and he lives in Philadelphia with his wife, Chelsea, and his children, Hazel and Orson. Jethro, you and your partner, Nick Jalan, you founded Common Practice, and a company with a mission to design the practical tools that make great conversations accessible to everyone. How long have you been designing tools and campaigns for social change? I've been working with Nick for 22 years, uh, designing campaigns and tools. Uh, And uh, the, the Hello Game is about five and a half years old. Five and a half years old. Now, was it always called Hello, or did it have any other names prior? Uh, it was originally called My Gift of Grace, uh, and it was designed um, as a response to a, a design challenge by the California Healthcare Foundation, and we were one of the winners, and then that was back in 2013, and then we went through a design process uh, where we involved um, a lot of supporters of a Kickstarter campaign that we did, uh, so we had about 400 people participate. Uh, as Kickstarter members in the design to refine the original game. And then about two years ago, we changed the name, maybe almost three years ago now, changed the name of the game from My Gift of Grace to Hello. My Gift of Grace. That's beautiful. Now, was that yours? (laughs) Was that yours? Can you share? (laughs) Sure. And I I also want to thank the listeners for tuning in and thank you for having me um, on the show. Uh, So we... It's funny, actually, you know, we, we came up with a name. We wanted to design something that really was a gift. Uh, and we wanted something that was, you know, again, non-threatening and easy to play, that anyone could play, uh, and that anyone could really give to a loved one as a gift. So, and Grace, for a number of us, was um, just sort of like the appropriate the kind of name for what I think, uh, at least in my family, Grace, uh, you know, really, I remember one of my relatives, she she sort of embodied grace. So I, I was thinking of her um, when I was designing the game. Yeah, it's a real sumptuous name. I love it because what you're really doing is you're using this game yeah. to engage families and communities and have these deep probing conversations. That's right. Yeah, and then we uh, decided to change the name in part because it was a little bit of a blind spot. We realized that there were some communities that, you know, Thought it would might that it might be a, like like a, a religious game that might exclude them. It really is a game designed for everybody, and so we changed the name just so that everyone understood it. Really, anyone could play it. Um, uh, and hello is obviously very you know a little more generic 
Um, but it's also the way you start a conversation, the way you meet someone. Uh, and really the game is just a powerful way to uh, meet people that you don't know, but also the way in some ways of almost of meeting people you've known forever in a new way. Yeah, hello. It's super, super welcoming. Okay, take it. Take us through it. If we all have this game in front of us, and I say, "Hey, Jethro, come to my house, and I want you to introduce this game to people," how would you explain it to us sitting around the table? I mean, I think like any game, you know, you take the game out of the package, you know, out of the box, you share the rules, and there's very simple rules. Um, everyone gets the materials, which are a, a questions booklet uh, with 32 very kind of deep, um, sort of open-ended questions. Uh, you also get thank you chips. So we all start with the same number of thank you chips. There's six chips. They're like little blue chips. Um, and during the game, you exchange those chips to express gratitude to other players. And the rules are very simple. Uh, you, can all, you, know, you can always change your answer. Uh, although you write your response down in your booklet first, um, you don't have to share your response. You can pass. You're always able to decide for yourself if you want to share a response that maybe you're not comfortable sharing yet. Um, the first rule, of course, is to listen because it's a conversation game. Um, and there are no wrong answers. So however you understand the question, however you answer it, you know, is, is correct. Um, and then you, uh, when someone reads a question out loud uh, from the booklet, you know, at the beginning you start in order until you're more familiar with the game. The first two questions kind of set the stage. Uh, for the game, that's uh, uh, the first is um, what are your hopes for playing the game? What are your fears for playing the game? Are the first two questions, and then from there it gets into like uh, various kinds of storytelling. Uh, the third question, for example, is uh, write your own epitaph in five words or less. Uh, but then it goes right into the question four, which is uh, who haven't you spoken with in the last six months you'd like to speak with? Before you died, and then there's questions like, "What activities make you lose track of time?" So, various kinds of questions to get at all sorts of different issues, stories, values, goals, and um, as much as I'd probably explain it, I'd probably get people into playing it as quickly as possible because there's nothing like playing a game to try. You know, it's always better to play it than to try to uh, over-explain it. You know. Yeah, just like life, we lead by example. So, what is your epitaph? Five words or less, just off the top of your head. Oh, um, I brought light to darkness. Oh, that's beautiful. See, I was going to say something about how I like naps and super big gulps, but I think yours is much more deep and profound. There's no wrong answers, Elizabeth. I like that. Yeah, I love that idea. I I love the idea there's no wrong answers. I love the gratitude chips. How neat is that, that we can give people a compliment and say, hey, thank you. We have this safe space to have a conversation about death and dying. And these are obviously incredibly meaningful and powerful conversations. And I thank you for sharing. Exactly. And I think, uh, yeah, gratitude is like a powerful, it's a powerful renewable resource because you know even though you start with six chips during the game you can those chips are circulating throughout the game i should have mentioned too that before you begin the game uh you flip a coin and you place it under the scoring card uh, no one knows whether it's heads or tails and at the end of the game you count your chips and if it's and you reveal the scoring coin and if it's head the person with the most chips is the winner if it's tails the person with the least chips is the winner so it kind of plays with the idea of winning um, and then really what that mechanism of winning really mean, uh, helps with the game is it encourages people to really 
uh, you know, to be grateful, which also helps people play the game in the sense that gratitude we know is uh, something that helps people deal with and cope with difficult situations. Uh, and it's a great way to create connections between people. Um, you know, like when I'm in any kind of conversation, if I'm sharing something of myself and someone, you know, is grateful, says thank you, I'm much more likely to continue to be myself, to share more of myself. So, yeah, that's why we had the thank you chips. It's a very simple uh, kind of mechanism, but, you know, like all, like all games, there's, you know, there's materials, there's, you know, um, game mechanics, there's, you know, things that, that you exchange between players, um, you know, which takes, you know, like a really powerful conversation that you may or may not have uh, often, not too often, really, about end-of-life issues, and it makes it something that's really simple that you could do over and over again regularly and not feel uncomfortable doing so. Then how do you encourage somebody who tells you straight out, I hate playing games and I'm really bulking <laughs> at this idea? Or if you get a whole, if you're introducing this, let's say, at some sort of um, end of life seminar or at a church sure. someplace and somebody says the whole table looks at you like you're nutty and you're asking them to <laughs> take a deep dive into uncomfortable stuff. How do you handle that? Um, you know, with humility and humor, uh, you know, there's hundreds of people hosting events in their community, including with, you know, their churches and other faith uh, communities uh, and organizations. And, you know, those hosts, you know, often bring a story from their own experience in life, but also playing the game that helps people understand that it's not some expert coming to tell them to do something. Um, and then, you know, letting folks know, you know, a bit about what the experience will be like. Um, it's rarely, it's rarely what people think it will be, like once people start playing it. So, again, that's why we try to get people kind of into the game so that they start really kind of grooving and playing together, uh, which happens really quickly, the kind of the camaraderie and bonding at, at tables. You know, so even last week I was in South Carolina um, at a, a multicultural center, mostly with, with, uh, with pastors and faith leaders, uh, in that community, and uh, you know, within 15 minutes, people are who have never met many of them uh, were connecting so deeply. And then when I tried to get them to stop after about 25 minutes, because we were near the end of the meeting, they just wouldn't stop. So that we extended the the session. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's uh, it's very rare that I find people um, that are resistant once they start. There's some resistance at the beginning sometimes and uh i often have found that people that say they're not big into games uh find that this is one that they enjoy if somebody is listening to this and they say yeah that's something that a offshoot of one of my church groups or somebody could really benefit from or there's a bunch of elders in a home or um you know a local organization sure. a library community church workshop what have you how does somebody get involved and decide that they're going to host this Great question. So usually it's someone that maybe already played it at some other event, or they hear it on a radio program like this, and they're interested. Uh, they will order a game from us. Sometimes people play the home edition first, which is a smaller version for you know up to five players, and then we have larger size uh, kits for larger sessions that also come with a planning guide for the host. It's a very detailed guide that walks people through it. Uh, in some cases, 
people also want a little bit more training, and we do a monthly online training. Uh, usually, though, um, a lot of my work these days is I work with, you know, a coalition of organizations, and it can be the kind of organizations you're talking about, churches, other faith organizations, uh, you know, retirement communities, assisted living facilities, high schools. I did a great project with a high school last year. Uh, and so it's a coalition of groups, sometimes sponsored by a health system or other organizations, sometimes it's a hospice, sometimes it's a church um, and, and the, that sponsor is the one uh, that I work with to equip uh, the organization, the coalition, with the resources, the materials, and the training if they're interested in the training. Um, and sometimes I travel to, to do the training. Sometimes I do it online. Uh, so that's the way it kind of spreads, very grassroots. Um, and really anyone can do it. You know, like I mentioned, high school students. We have high school students hosting game events. Uh, it doesn't have to be... You know, someone with um, a lot of education in a formal sense. It just has to be someone that's passionate, um, who's benefited probably personally from the game, and then wants to share it with their groups. And how mainstream are you nowadays? You've got your own hashtag, <laughs> hashtag play hello. <laughs> hashtag play hello, that's right. Yeah, we're very, uh, try to be social, socially media relevant. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, we have... Um, some of the larger um, healthcare organizations uh, and faith organizations that are participating, you know, it's definitely it's caught on. You know, like I wish it was even more caught on. So many people uh, still struggle, you know, in their families when they're you know when there's someone that's seriously ill and they're dealing with you know crisis after crisis and caregiving challenges. So uh, we certainly have a long way to go until everyone knows about it. And everyone has the opportunity to play it. But, you know, I feel like, um, you know, after five years, you know, we're definitely getting attention and people are, you know, playing the game, um, which is exciting because really it's, um, you know, I play all the time, but I, I continue to, every single time I, I benefit from it. Uh, and every time I play with people I don't know, I, you know, I often leave with a new friend, um, new colleague, new partner. Um, and I feel like that's, you know, there's not a lot of, things these days which allow you to connect in person very deeply um you know in a really um you know authentic way can you share with us in one of the times that you've played a question that was asked and then some just amazing answer either because it was the depth of it or just because it was just so wacky out of the box ah that's a good question um uh Frequently, question uh, four, which is the question about um, who haven't you spoken with in the last six months you'd like to speak with before you died, elicits just a tremendous set of stories at a table that often, like, and oftentimes there's like uproarious laughter about a friendship that maybe uh, someone wants to rekindle, sometimes a lot of tears, but. I remember, like, I think I was in Chicago, and it was a, it wasn't so much outrageous as it was, like, beautiful. You know, it was a story about um, a man, you know, it was a man uh, sharing a story about uh, his aunt um, who he had lost track of and wanted to reconnect to, and this aunt had, like, supported him through, like, every hardship, including, like, paying for college. And, um, it, and I just remember, like, as a, as a man listening to another man, 
in his story, and uh, and uh, and we were both crying about it, and everyone at the table was starting to cry about it. It was a very powerful story. Um, that 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 you know that struck me when you asked the question, um, and this frequently, um, you know, there's some questions about you know there's a question uh, uh, if uh, if one story told at your memorial service like about you who should tell it that solicited just like amazing stories and relationships of, of people um, a lot of times you know issues of friendships, um, you know, family relationships, relationships with animals, you know, pets that people love, loved ones. Um, you know, it's fascinating. Um, it really ranges. Um, but the things I think that often stick with me more are like the, you know, like the sort of surprising, um, uh, you know, emotion. Oftentimes I feel like men get to me more than, you know, I, I don't expect like a man to, I wish I did expect more men to, to break down and cry. Um, but when they have, it's, you know, it's often like a, you can see it's very cathartic for, for people, even though it's not designed like a therapy. You know, it's often a story that maybe someone hasn't thought about in a long time. Um, and those are the ones that I think stick with me the most. This game is just absolutely right up your alley. And when your father passed away about 20 years ago, you founded a bereavement support organization that helped college students cope with the serious illness or death of a loved one. I think that's amazingly admirable, amazingly telling, and you really yearn for those human connections just to be able to put that together. What was that experience like for you? Well, thanks for asking about that. Um, yeah, I grew up very close with my parents. My mom, thankfully, still with us. Uh, she's like really a mentor of mine as well, as being a great mom. And um, you know, when, when I was 19, just about turning 20, second year in college, you know, learned that my my father Lance was gonna um, was very sick and was and was not gonna survive cancer. It was a, um, a form of cancer, stomach cancer. And, you know, we had about five months. We didn't know, we didn't know at the time exactly how many months, but we knew he wasn't going to live much uh, longer. Um, So, you know, I had the experience of, you know, caring for him, uh, doing things that like a young person doesn't necessarily think they're going to do at a young age. Uh, You know, like, you know, helping him, um, you know, bathe and use the bathroom, um, help him like with the, like feeding him through a tube, things like that. Um, so that experience was very, like the caregiving experience at a young age was something that that itself was very impactful. And then, um, you know, I was with him when he died. Um, my, I was holding one of his hands. My brother was holding the other. Um, and then I got very interested. Um, we had lots of conversations. My dad was very open to talking about how he was, you know, feeling throughout the process of dying and, and living with, you know, a serious illness. Um, and then I got really interested in how, you know, first young people, but then just generally how people and communities deal with loss of various kinds and decided to create a, a bereavement support program for young people, which I um, created with a local hospice. Uh, you know, while I was in college, I ran it for a couple of years. And uh, it was really powerful. I mean, so many young people... Uh, and we see this in the news, I mean, this, you know, the issues around school shootings and, but even, you know, before, before even that was front page news, 
when I was growing up, it was issues of suicide. We now have the opioid crisis, um, uh, drunk driving issues. You know, young people are dealing with lots of issues all the time. So um, I, frequently, I frequently, even as a kind of middle-aged guy now, you know, I'm in my mid to late 40s now, I'm always trying to remind people that, you know, people of all ages are coping with serious issues. And it's not like... Um, you know, it's not, you know, it's often hidden. It's not something that people are going to express when you first meet them. Um, and we need to do better at supporting people because we're all human beings that are, that are caregivers, that are loved ones, that are ourselves, maybe patients, um, of, you know, that are dealing with illnesses and injuries and hardship. And I think we could just do a much better job at, at caring for each other. I also think maybe caring for ourselves, drinking water, mm-hmm. self-care. But how about wearing our seatbelts? Um, people nowadays sure. walk with their cell phone on the sidewalk and they trip over the yeah. cracks. I mean, there's just so many yeah. things of just, you know, not just caring for others and those around, but ourselves. So I think that's wonderful. Such a young age, you did that. Was it weird being on a college campus and you being so involved with hospice? Were you just sort of that guy people would avoid? Or did you find more people migrated to you? No, I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm not really the life of the party anymore because I don't go to many parties. But when I do, I think I am. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, uh, no, I think, you know, I was, uh, I'm a very social person. I'm, I think I'm one of the more joyful people in college. That was true. I mean, it was a hard, really the first year after my dad died, you know, I was definitely in, you know, I guess clinically with people or, or not clinically, but, you know, professionally someone would say, oh, you're like in a, an acute grief kind of stage. Uh, and so it was very difficult. But when I was running the program, I was sharing stories about my experience, which then attracted other students. Um, I even did a survey. You know, this was a big, um, you know, state university, 20,000 students. And I, we did a survey that showed that about half the student population was coping with um you know, a serious illness or recent loss of a loved one. Wow. Yeah, you know, so this so it's really needed, um, you know, that kind of service. The same way it's needed, I think, now more and more in, you know, in, in companies, you know, for employees. And so many employees are dealing with caregiving challenges and they're missing work because of it, um, rather than, you know, kind of providing the kind of support and services that will keep people, uh, you know, happy and hopefully with a schedule that's flexible enough so they can deal with the caregiving challenges of a loved one, I'd say. Um, I love the fact that... I think I was definitely... uh, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think it's a lot more than bereavement leave. It's like you're saying how to deal with the challenges, tools, things like that. That's right. Yeah, I think... um, Like, bereavement... I mean, my kind of perspective is that we're kind of always dealing with, you know, various kinds of challenges around various kinds of losses. You know, even recently, a very minor thing for me was I had a, a small, painfully minor hip surgery, uh, which, you know, in many ways, you know, I didn't need it. It was something that would allow me to stay active. It would allow me to kind of walk and continue to be athletic and be able to work out, and, you know, and stay healthy. But it wasn't, a, it wasn't a hip replacement. But even that, even a very small procedure, where I was, you know, back home the same day, you know, it took a lot out of me, took a lot out of my family. Um, so, and that's nothing compared to like, you know, what happened with my dad or what people are dealing with when they have like, you know, a, 
a much more significant surgery or an illness. Um, and I just think, uh, you know, we think, oh, people are just going to, you know, get this treatment or this surgery or this procedure and, they, and everything's hunky-dory. And I just don't think it is. Like, I think people are, you know, often like silently suffering and being told to, you know, suck it up. Um, and I just don't think it, that's not an effective strategy for self-care. You know, self-care really um, requires a lot of support and it's rarely done independently. You know, we care for ourselves. Um, you know, we can do a lot on our own, but, you know, these things are, uh, we benefit from, you know, a family that supports us, a community that supports us, an organization or, you know, employer that supports us, et cetera. You know, there's so many you know, layers of that support system that make a healthy person. Somehow I wouldn't gather that people who live in Philadelphia use the term hunky-dory. <laughs> but you didn't. It was adorable. It was a good one. We have a few minutes left. I want to ask you about your recent work with Pastor Corey Kennard. Sure. Oh, the work with Pastor Corey Kennard is amazing. Um, and I had a recent trip with him uh, in South Carolina, as I mentioned. Uh, you know, we connected um, through a national project that was using the Hello Game with particular focus on using the game with um, African-American communities, primarily in faith settings, um, although not exclusively. And uh, we just hit it off. He, he really feels that the game is just a great way to engage any community, but particularly the community he's, come, he's from. He's from Detroit, um, you know, and he's an you know, African-American pastor. Um, and uh, so the work with him involves identifying communities to work with, again, often kind of sponsored by a larger organization. Um, he does a lot of the pastor-to-pastor -pastor kind of education, training, support. It always involves the game, hello. Uh, but then we've also done a couple, uh, he's, you know, with our support, we've designed a few, really four questions that are, um, you know, faith-based that are rooted in uh, the Paul and Timothy story from the New Testament and uh, really looking at that story through the lens of kind of like an advanced care planning story. So um, I won't do justice to it the way uh, the pastor does, but, you know, Paul really kind of instructing and providing um, guidance for Timothy in, a, in, a, in, a, in the same kind of way that I might with my own child or the way that me and my wife talk about my advanced care planning. Um, and, so, and so we have this whole... Uh, we also have like an enamel pin and a whole kind of campaign around the concept of who's your Timothy. And so who are you uh, choosing in your life to, um, you know, to, to carry on your legacy, to support you as you're at the end of your life? Um, in a sense, it's not exactly like your healthcare proxy, but, uh, you know, someone that you trust that could also in some ways do those kinds of things in the event that you're not able to communicate, you know, someone that knows who you are and knows what you want uh, and can advocate for you. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's fascinating work to kind of see the game um, extended specifically into kind of a, into a Christian faith perspective um, and then work with a pastor to then, you know, make it really relevant um, to, you know, to communities that I think really can benefit from it and, and that are benefiting from it. Uh, so it's like a, yeah, it's a privilege. You know, I'm, I'm um, an East Coast 
Jew from Boston. So, you know, when I'm in a community that's, uh, and I'm, I'm Caucasian. So, you know, being a community of color in a you know, Christian community of color and being able to kind of participate and then train and support people uh, to use the game in those communities means a lot to me because it's, again, it's not, it's not the community I'm from, but it's a community that's welcomed me, which I, I'm, I feel very kind of privileged and, and blessed to be able to be a part of it. Yeah, inclusion is a huge thing. That's loving right. people for who they are and letting them be a mm-hmm. part of what we're doing. If somebody wants to buy Hello, learn information about Hello, learn about you, Jethro, from Philadelphia. How <laughs> do people find more information? Great question. So our website is commonpractice.com because uh, our goal is to make these conversations a common practice, you know, so that people do it kind of habitually. Uh, and from the commonpractice.com website, it's mostly focused on the Hello game and then the different versions, which are prim- primarily just about how many players. So there's home edition for up to five people. There's the event kits for 25 or 50 people. And then you can use more than one kit if you're having a lot, much larger event. Uh, and then there's a custom version where we custom print the game for you know, a larger initiative, like I mentioned earlier, where you're engaging you know, thousands of people in, in using the game. You've been listening to KKPZ 1330 AM The Truth. Thank you to my guest, Jethro Heiko, and until we meet again next week, be excellent to each other.